Hello and welcome to the November 2nd, 2010 Game & Player Podcast. I'm Michael Ubaldi and I'm here with Ed Kirchgesner, Heather Richtmeier, James Day, Jessica Johnson, and Wes Shockley. Today we're going to talk about the Supreme Court hearing Video Software Dealers Association versus Arnold Schwarzenegger, which could be the ruling that determines how video games are sold and even uh, legally treated for generations. We're also just going to go around the horn and talk about what we've been playing. So let's start with our current event. October 2005, State Senator Leland Yee pens a law which makes it illegal to sell mature-rated games, or the state's definition of such, to minors. It's signed into law by Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger. Almost immediately, a lawsuit is filed by the Entertainment Software Association and uh, Video Software Dealers Association and related interests of the uh, video game industry. It's rendered unenforceable by an injunction, and it's spent the last five years going through the court system, continually resurrected by Leland Yee et al. through appeal systems. In January 2007, it was ruled unconstitutional, and it was heard by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, and again, uh, the lower court's ruling was uh, affirmed. Now... It seems that the argument that Leland Yee and, uh, and his uh, crew were going to be taking to the Supremes on this Tuesday is that uh, they seek to uh, transfer the variable obscenity clause or uh, principle found in Ginsburg versus New York, which is a 1968 court ruling. Essentially, a fellow by the name of Ginsburg was giving nudie mags to uh, underage youth, and the court ruled that it was within the state's ability to prohibit the sale of those magazines to minors while preserving the First Amendment rights of the publishers and adults who wanted to see a little skin. Now, the two problems that have been raised by the defense and by both the Ninth Circuit and the Federal District Court are that, uh, first, obscenity in law and uh, stare decisis, or court precedent, appeals in, in its appealing to the purient interest pertains only to sexual content. You can't say that an ultraviolet game, at least in this context, equals sexual content. Now, that can certainly be revisited by the Supreme Court, but as it stands, the two are not interchangeable. Second, as highlighted by the Ninth District, restrictions on speech are considered what's known as presumptively invalid, meaning the government isn't in a position to say, you can't say this, and you have to prove that it's okay to say that. The question is, is the government able to prevent you from from saying something. And that seems to be where video games fall right now. It's generally accepted that video games are uh, a form of expression and not simply a commodity, not something that uh, uh, Congress or any other legislature could uh, restrict through, uh, through commerce legislation. My own take is that even though I may dislike ultraviolence, I'm not going to play a Grand Theft Auto, I typically dislike uh, uh, extreme violence or uh, wanton violence, violence for the sake of it, but 
the government is in no position to prohibit that from uh, from being presented or allowed. Now, the problem with expanding obscenity to include violence is that violence has an interesting role in culture. We as youth are exposed to forms of violence ranging from comic violence, purely slapstick that you see in Tom and Jerry, to various forms of simulated violence that uh, are found in uh, pre-adolescent and adolescent cartoons like G.I. Joe and the like, where animated characters are firing guns and occasionally hurting or killing each other, to actual violence wherein 12-year-olds are playing Modern Warfare 2, which does simulate the the uh, potentially gory or uh, uh, intense cause of injury to, to combatants. But expose a child to something sexual, and that child is ill-equipped to handle it. Moreover, our culture going back uh, centuries, has very little place for actual sexual content. Um, it's usually euphemized as romance, and instead, great battles or great struggles, the work of heroes, great acts of valor, are framed in violence. And so violence in and of itself isn't a terrible thing. What do you think? Well, one thing I want to point out is I would say that the perspective that, you know, violence is acceptable, yet sexuality is not, um, doesn't necessarily hold, hold true outside of Western media and culture. And that is an interesting question, because even though Ginsburg versus New York is the, the firewall for a state to be able to prohibit uh, sexual content, the question sometimes becomes... Is Ginsburg versus New York even appropriate? Mm-hmm. Right. I, I, I've always wondered myself if, um, it, if it isn't a bit strange that violence should be so permissible, whereas, you know, sexuality, even, I'm not talking, you know, deviant sexuality right now, you know, but just pretty tame sexuality is frowned upon in just about every media. So... And a related problem to that is uh, the reason why any game is considered uh, worthy of an M rating. Halo, for example. It includes violence that may to a degree qualify as intense, but can you really argue that the, it's, it's warping, that, that Halo is a gory game? I don't know, yet it is in that category, uh, and that does lend uh, some credit to the argument of the plaintiffs and also the judges that this is overbroad by simply saying there is violence in this that is more than an animated cat hitting uh, an animated mouse over the head with a Nerf bat. It's it's, it's a very, very wide thing. It's certainly not a, a Playboy game where the only purpose of it is likely titillation. I don't think anybody plays a plays one of those games, uh, uh, or even the adults-only category for, uh, for compelling gameplay. I think the critics would agree with you there. <laughs> <laughs> now, of course, what makes this uh, case so important and interesting is that 
Over the last 10-15 years, over a dozen states and cities have tried to pass laws, all of them uh, uh, swept away through, uh, through the court system and uh, uh, a, a, a unanimous rejection on the part of juris, uh, jurisprudence. Nothing has made it to the federal level, meaning the, uh, the decision of the Supreme Court will affect the sale and the, the uh, cultural perception, the legal handling of video games for years. This will be something on, uh, on the level of uh, Miller v. California, which, which established the modern test in courts for obscenity. Will the Supreme Court include violence uh, in the definition of obscenity and then offer something similar to the Miller test? We don't know, but this is certainly unprecedented, and it will have repercussions. Well, speaking as um, a parent, um, I, I have my concerns over this uh, for a long time, and being a gamer. Uh, you know, I'm probably one of the rare few parents that pay attention to the ESRB, um, and, and that's where I find that, that I feel like this... Um, issue as bringing up at the federal level to me is always been a waste. This is a waste of, of taxpayer money. The ESRB works. It tells every parents everything they need to know to make the right choices. Um, and me being a gamer, I take it a step further and uh, I will play the game. Um, sorry about that. Uh, to find out for myself what the content is before I, I'll let my, uh, my, my kids touch it. And it's an extra step I have to take because I have two autistics. And, uh, you know, they tend to be human tape recorders. Uh, so you want to make sure uh, that you kind of have an idea what's going on in there. Um, and, and, and that's my opinion on it. I, I feel the whole, the whole issue is, is, is a waste of taxpayer money. Uh, parents are just not wanting to do their job. I've been in uh, game stores and stood in line and watched parents bike their kids' Grand Theft Auto. And it doesn't make sense to me, you know, when you, the kid is obviously 10. Yeah, it, it doesn't make sense. Um, and that's my opinion on it, for, for, for lack of a better term right now. You mentioned the ESRB, which is the Entertainment uh, Software Ratings Board. And that is much like the MPAA, or the Motion Pictures of America Association's uh, rating that we all know as G, PG, PG-13, and R. And that is a voluntary uh, industry self-censorship or self-regulation. And uh, I know, Ed, you've made the comment that uh, one system seems to work fairly well, if it is used by parents, obviously negligence can take many forms and even the best tools when unused uh, are, are useless. But Congress or state legislatures don't seem to be especially worried about movies anymore. And I, I, my guess is because the ESRB has been trying their darndest to have you know consumer education campaigns to make parents and you know everyone aware of what the ratings represent. Um, I, I think the ESRB has done everything they can do, and a lot of people in Congress have commended the ESRB 
on the moves it's made to further educate parents. The problem, I think, is still the underlying perception that games somehow are just for children. So some less educated consumers will just blatantly go and you know buy a game for their kids because, hey, it's a game and games are for children. Well, clearly, they're not always. Um, and heck, the same could be said for, uh, for cartoons. I'm just thinking anime. Um, there's clearly certain categories of anime that are not <laughs> for children. Um, and, you know, as, as much as you put black ink all over the front of these, these DVD covers, there's still some idiot who's going to say, oh, wow, cartoon characters, and be horrified when uh, they see what the cartoon characters are doing with each other. So, um, yeah, I, I really think that the, the problem the video game industry has right now is simply one of perception, that there are enough consumers out there who just have this preconception that games are still just for children in the same way that other forms of entertainment are childish. The other argument being made against games is made by Leland He himself, and he calls these, to paraphrase, violence simulators. Of course, in a movie, you're watching a character do something. In a game, you're controlling the actions, often, of a character who is committing crimes uh, or, or violence. And, uh, say, in the case of uh, Modern Warfare 2, something absolutely heinous is in the hands of, uh, of a player. Um, to the point where they they choose, in, in most explicit volition, to take part in the slaughter of civilians. His rationale is that this affects people. The defense states that, and I've seen, uh, uh, even the, 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 the research that has gone into this, even that submitted by the uh, purveyors of this law, that it's inconclusive. And obviously we've seen that with other dangers, such as cigarette smoking, maybe one in five, even less, will be affected by emphysema. But how many Columbine killers do we have as a result of playing ultraviolent games? I always have a bit of trouble with the argument because it seems to assume that no one who's watching a movie is identifying with the actions or acting them out. Or... Because I remember when I was younger... We would run around with my cousins and we would play Star Trek or play whatever. And we're all like, we're running around shooting things with Nerf guns and whatever we have. So it's not as if this is something that only people who play games can engage in. But Heather, Star Trek had a sun setting. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You think we used it? (laughs) The Klingons never use sun settings. (laughs) set phasers to melt (laughs) well something that always strikes me as funny when this kind of thing happens um, in the US is that the obviously USA is like the the world's largest uh, gaming market Um, but the the government spends so much time and money like we were saying earlier taxpayers money on these like court cases and Examples like this, uh, which uh, almost seem to be, you know, blaming uh, video games for society's ills. So they're trying to have it both ways in a way. Like, I mean, yeah, the the, the funds from the game industry are, are lining their pockets, but at the same time, they're, you know, constantly uh, slamming it for uh, corrupting the children. So it's 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 just amazing as as, as an outsider how 
how it works like that. Yeah, it's relatively ridiculous. And going back to what Mike was saying earlier, I'd have to say the ESRB does seem to do a good job. I know I'm a bit younger than some of the people here, but there's a GameStop near my house, and I've gone there somewhat regularly for several years now. And every time I go in there and buy an M-Rated Gaten, I get carded. Even though the same person has carded me several times over several years, I still get carded. And at one point, my grandmother, who has no experience with video games, went out and she was looking at, I believe it was Assassin's Creed 2. And she could look at the back of the box and say, you know, this is something I like or I don't like or I don't think would be appropriate. Well, you know, that's what amazes me about um, this interview that Leland Yee recently did saying that the ESRB is biased and their rating system isn't informative enough for parents when if you look at the back of the game, it clearly says there's violence, there's sexual content, there's crude language. But, you know, still, I guess that's that's not enough for, for this guy. But, you know, the ESRB is, is really trying hard, like you guys have said, and... I think that uh, if Congress would actually, you know, get behind them a bit more and give them some actual power or at least, you know, create something new like the ESRB, then then we would have something that uh, would not only be informative like the ESRB, but it would actually, you know, have have some ramifications to people who did sell to minors or you know <clears throat> but that's the thing that just blows my mind is how somebody who's trying to to police the system can go and insult the one thing that we have that is there to actually keep track of of who is allowed to buy what games and and yet you know it's just a it kind of turns it into a big, uh, I don't know, catastrophe. And it's it's really confusing to people, you know. We have the SR ESRB, so why are you going after the ESRB and, and video games when we already have a system in place? Control. I mean, and, yeah, and <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous. Exactly. I remember Penny Arcade was involved with the ESRB one year at E3 and they were making posters because they were trying to, you know, get them out there more so that people were more aware of it. And if it was the, actually a great campaign. Yeah, I yeah, loved that campaign. I loved it. But then yeah. it just went away. And it was like, you know, wait, the ESRB needs needs more help. But when you've got people like Leland Yee going after them, you know, it, it's kind of futile, it seems. And a waste of money, as Wes said. Yeah, it's a it's a major waste of money. I, I find it ironic that it's, you know, it's more than likely a group of parents that are pushing this. Yet, this thing that they're pushing through is there an accountability for the number one violators of this so-called selling uh, uh, inappropriate games to children, which which really are the parents because the parents buy them. Yeah. You know, and, and that's what frustrates me as a parent. Uh, and, and as someone who's been kind of been involved in games for a really long time, I've, I've seen a lot of changes over the years. So I'm kind of hopeful uh, in a way because I've seen things that back in the past that weren't considered acceptable that today are pop culture. Um, 
So, but you know, I I really still think it's a it's a waste of money, um, and it's sad. Heather mentioned GameStop, and GameStop is you know it. I'm sure a prime example of a store that tries to do things right by way of the ESRB and all these card people for uh, you know seeing if they are you know over what is, it, is it 17 or 18 to buy an M-rated game? I don't even know. It's I, 17. 17. 17. Yeah, but um, as as if GameStop isn't kind of I don't know. I walk into a GameStop and I feel sort of like I'm walking into a an adult bookstore already just because of the way they laid the stores out. <laughs> I, I think it's just going to feel all the more like that if this if this law passes. I, yeah, they're going to have like a curtain that you have to exactly. go behind. <laughs> uh, so Timmy, what's in the back room? Eh? What's in the Surely. brown bag? Yeah, everybody's hugging. <laughs> <laughs> what are you playing, Ed? What am I playing? I have been um, sort of playing the same things the last month and a half so multiplayer is still a lot of modern warfare too but the one thing i am doing as uh my most recent solo exercise is i'm trying to slog through halo reach on legendary by myself and um what's amazing me is how much more doable that is in this game than it has been in the last few halo games in particular in halo 2 and halo 3 um legendary in halo 2 was like I, 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 it was almost an, it was almost torture. There was not um, a, a a usable delta between heroic and and legendary. No, no. It's like okay, doable and fun, and then torture. Legendary sniper alley. Yeah. Yeah. It just was was nuts. But um, I'm amazed at how doable this this task is in um in reach and i think that's a good thing i mean i i like it when things feel like you can actually you know accomplish a goal and 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 add an achievement to your to your list but um i'm having a great time with it it was um, like that in uh, in in combat evolved it was difficult oh. but it was and not I, impossible I'd say this is a parallel exactly it's it's the same the same level of challenge you know you're you're going to be replaying things a number of times however Usually, when you're having to do something over and over and over again, you can point out the mistake you're ma- you're making. You know why you're dying. It's just you need to not do that. <laughs> Even from a <laughs> so. from a thematic perspective, and I don't know if this shows through in Reach as well. It was so impressive to finally not feel like a super soldier who could easily overwhelm any number of enemies, but to be at the very best, only comparable to one of the hundreds and hundreds of, in this case, uh, the the Sangele, the elites that you'd fight. That you were no better than any one of those, but you had to fight hundreds of them. Yeah, and uh, the the AI is good. You know, I, I'm I'm enjoying the AI immensely in Reach. Um, yeah, I'm I'm having a good time with it, and I think I'm on mission six of ten. I got past that that near, nearly impossible section where you're you're flying in the uh, the spaceship. What's it called? A saber, mm-hmm. and uh, then you have to land on the uh, the Covenant cruiser and do some gnarly things there. So I've made it through that section, but um, yeah, I, I I think I'm actually going to pull through. So that's what I've been playing in a nutshell. That's good. What about you, James? Well, um, I have been playing to follow up on. Uh, the last episode where we talked quite a bit about uh, the creepy uncle of video gaming, uh, Peter Molyneux. <laughs> um, I've been playing some Fable 3, which uh, I think Jess can uh, 
chime in on. Um, I literally just finished my first playthrough like five minutes before we uh, all jumped onto Skype. So I've actually finished the game. Um, Jess, how, I saw your how far Twitter you mention. Give us a bottom <laughs> line. Give us a bottom line. One sentence. Uh, it's, it's so hard because um, obviously a lot of uh, spoilers towards the end. Um, how about too easy? Big, big picture. Think big picture. <laughs> um, well, let me just uh, re-quote uh, what I put in my uh, tweet, which uh, sums it up uh, in an appropriate way. I said, it's just loading it up, um, to use an appropriate and obscure Britishism to sum up Fable 3's ending, it was pony. Um, <laughs> <laughs> does anybody know what that is? No. <laughs> okay. Well, kind of lame uh, uh, as for in regards to the ending. Um, uh, Jess, how much have you played so far, just to get an idea of what I should say? In um, not too far. I've only we've only made it to a couple of cities, so we're we're all the way to the city of industry that uh, the first industrial town that you come to. So okay. Not too far. Mm. Okay. Well, or I don't know. Actually, maybe it is. Depends. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like, I kind of just um, went straight for the story stuff and found the game really short because I didn't do any of the side stuff. Um, but I think, uh, like Molyneux was uh, has been saying that the whole time. This isn't really spoilers because he's been uh, preaching this the whole time. That uh, when you do become king it kind of uh, changes like you actually have to make these kingly decisions about how to spend the uh, money in Albion and uh, what promises you can fulfill and things like that so the gameplay shifts dramatically in the last third and I don't know it's not quite sounds administrative yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't sound fun, and for the most part, it's not that fun because you're not going out and adventuring for most of it. So, You know, it's funny you say that because that kind of reminds me of the second edition D&D's defense of playing a high-level character. It was kind of a weak defense for, for such a great game. It was essentially, well, so you're a level 20 warrior. Well, you can still have fun by gathering hirelings and well sometimes you, you live in a castle and you have to deal with the uh, internal political struggles of your followers and it it, it, it did sound like so much uh, uh, landlordship and mm. and managing your tenants rather than being the, the the little whelp who sneaks into the cave and finds a, a a wren who seeks out the dragon's weak spot and saves the day mm. it's it's um be fair on Fable, it's not as dull as it could have been, mm -hmm. but it kind of leads into my main issue with it, is that this king phase is surprisingly short. They tell you you have an in-game year to basically sort the kingdom out for something that's going to happen in a year's time, mm -hmm. but the time lapses they throw at you are, are massive. Like I, At one point, I, was at, um, I had like 300 or something days left, and then I did a, maybe about half an hour's play and suddenly I was at the final day and I had no time to do anything. So it was kind of disappointing. I can't really spoil what happens at mm -hmm. this very last day. But basically it's a kind of a point of no return. And if you haven't finished up all the quests or spent enough money um, properly, then you kind of get stuck in a 
bad ending and you can't reload and you know change any of your decisions so that'd be depressing in any game yeah so yeah let alone a sandbox game exactly <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah so a warning to anybody who's playing fable as soon as you get to the the king stage just start doing as much as you can to earn money and to uh do as well as you can because that time just goes really fast in the game so can you think of any specific promises of Molyneux that were either well, kept or broken yes uh well, one of the main ones, when they first announced Fable 3, and he touched on this at Eurogamer actually, was um, they were going to implement this system of touch. Um, like he said, he kind of stole the idea from Eco. Um, and he, you know, he was doing his usual preaching to the press about how significant this is and how it's going to uh, in- endear you to the world of Albion and its people and all this sort of stuff. But that mechanic boils down in the game to holding someone's hand to escort them places. And, you know, something that we've seen in, like, Dead Rising, like, even the first Dead Rising. Um, And you just, it just, you don't really use it for anything. And it it replaces the uh, follow um, expression you had in Fable 2, where you could uh, get up to, like, 20 people to follow you. Now you can only grab one person's hand and, and drag them somewhere. And, you know, this is, was supposed to be some epic major thing, and it was, hmm. yeah, just one of the couple of uh, things he's uh, sort of promised and uh, hasn't delivered on, again, sadly. <laughs> At uh, least he's yeah, trying, um, right? For the hand-holding thing, the only thing I've noticed that comes of that is on the loading screen when you play with another person who's signed in, is that you can compare how how long you've held somebody's hand collectively to how long the other person has. And yeah. that's like the most useless statistic <laughs> I have ever seen. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, not to ramble on too long, but uh, another thing that he did with this game is to, what going on the complaints of Fable 2 about how the, the menu structure was really clunky. Um, mm-hmm. He's basically ripped out any menu um, out of Fable 3, and it's all done through... Um, this place called the Sanctuary. You press start and you you teleport to this series of rooms where, um, like your your weapons and your clothes are all laid out in front of you. And you can go up to them and equip them that way. Um, that just seems completely counterintuitive to what those menus did. You know, you just press one button, you pull up the menu, quickly choose what you want, and you're done. This way, it's just it's it's so it just takes. Sounds like you're spending game necessary. time to just. Equip, it's cumbersome. Equip a new yeah. offhand. I mean, it's, it's, it would yeah. be like so digging in your strange. pocket and pulling out a potion, but now what? You've got to teleport to this place and go to your, your potion shelf? Yeah, it's mm-hmm. and because of that, there's other strange things, like you can no longer sell your items at any shop you find. You have to go to a specific shop, and it's just adding the busy work where, you, you know, it needn't be any. Um, and this is just Peter Molyneux, obviously... Uh, getting too caught up in you know being innovative to actually see that this is was a very bad idea that's yeah it's just busy work didn't see the forest for the trees now you have on tape peter molyneux claiming that uh, fable 3 would be the the best fable ever um <laughs> what's your yeah. response to that um n- no uh, uh, fable, 2, <laughs> fable 2 is definitely a better game i mean 
there's a few things here and there that are better. Like the frame rate is a lot more stable, especially in combat from Fable 2. Some of the animations are good. Um, but yeah, I mean, no. I, I, I agree with um, Giant Bomb's review of the game. They get three out of five stars. Um, they basically said the same things. Like, yeah, the, the cumbersome lack of menus and and the 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 ending, which you know has this point of no return that jumps up on you and you know can ruin your whole playthrough really. Um, so, creepy Uncle Pete is uh, let me down again. It's the kind of statement that would destroy somebody's career <laughs> if they weren't Peter Molyneux, who spent the last fifteen years building up an immunity to shame. Yeah, I mean, and just to just to close out, I think I think the King stuff almost feels like it should have been in a separate game. Like, he was trying to make another one of his, like, strategy games like Populous or mm-hmm. maybe something like, uh, you know, more towards, like, um, Dungeon Keeper or a Theme Hospital, I think he worked on Bull- at Bullfrog. So, yeah, it kind of sounds like it should have been a separate management game and not part of Fable, or at least a Fable spin-off. So, yeah, a bit of a disappointment. Better luck next time, Peter. Jess, what yeah. have you been playing? Well, I've primarily been playing Super Meat Boy and alternating between Fable 3 with Chris, which I would like to give a warning not to have children with your, you know, Xbox Live friends too early in the game because you have to pay for a nanny. And uh, that's quite a drain on your funds. Uh, yeah, it's very awkward. But uh, uh, yeah, the, and the nanny is only there during the day. So that kind of puts a damper on on questing. Um, but primarily I've been playing Super Meat Boy, and that's an Xbox Live Arcade game. Uh, I first played it at E3, and Chris and I were pretty hooked on it. It is very, very basic. It's, you know, you're just jumping around. It's, a, it's like a basic platformer. But I absolutely love it because it is extremely hard. And I think the the thing that I like about it the most is that even though it's extremely challenging to try and jump through all these obstacles, you know, you're you're playing this wad of meat that's very slippery and you can you can really feel that as you're trying to rebound off these walls and jump over piles of salt and et cetera. But the fact that even though you're they kind of assume, you know, you're gonna you're gonna die a lot. So they kind of do this uh, aggregate um, play thing at the end, a recording of all the times that you died <laughs> layered over each other. Learn and from your actually, mistakes. Yeah, but I mean, so so it kind of, you know, makes the idea of dying like 50 times to pass one level not so bad because then you have this entertaining little uh, thing, documentary at the end of <laughs> all the bad things you did. But uh, it is quite entertaining and... And the uh, the cutscenes themselves that tell the story about Super Meat Boy and his girlfriend, a uh, Band-Aid girl, who was kidnapped by Dr. Fetus, who is basically a fetus inside this glass container with a, a monocle. Um, and you're just going to save her. It's very, you know, Super Mario, but it has its own uh, kind of unique style to it that I really, really like. Um, and really good music, too, which I just heard that there's a soundtrack coming that's out for it. Um, but no, I love this. I love this game, and I could probably play it for hours. To clarify, uh, uh, Battletoads hard or Ninja Gaiden hard? 
I would say Battletoads hard, but an infinite number of lives. You which, don't, like, yeah, which which kills so, people in Battletoads. Yeah, that's what <laughs> that's what always frustrated me about Battletoads. Like, you know, in those games, you could totally get through the game and beat it and have a good time if you didn't have to worry about how many lives you were using. But uh, in Super Meat Boy, they they take that element out of it, and I think that makes it all the more enjoyable. <laughs> Uh, let's see. I've been doing a lot of um, metal, the new Metal of Honor on PC. Uh, I, you know, the game is a good game, but uh, it does it is warranting the reviews that it's been getting, which have been pretty mediocre. Uh, it's basically uh, it's done with two game engines. Um, the they're obviously using the Unreal Engine for uh, single player. And for uh, multiplayer, they have been using uh, Dice's um, Frostbite engine. Uh, single player is pretty much an attempt to be like Call of Duty in some ways. How they, like Call of Duty, you, you you're playing vignettes of a story. You switch from one uh, soldier to another, um, and it it still needs a lot of work. The single player was a little too short. Uh, the AI was not that great, um, but still enjoyable, still playable, uh, still enough action to make me feel like I didn't waste my money. Uh, the thing they did get right, and this kind of goes back to, I guess, your, your last podcast where Ed had talked about military portrayal in games. Mm-hmm. And the one thing I did like about it is the dialogue is what actually kind of, I thought they kind of was the one thing that they nailed right. Uh, I'm, I used to be in the service and, you know, I've kind of hung out with spec ops type guys and stuff like that, even though I wasn't involved in that sort of thing. And when you hear those guys talk to each other, they talk in a tone that even though they're speaking English, it's still like it's another language. And you can tell that it's something that these guys only understand with each other. And I kind of got the feel of that, or at least a reminder of that while playing the game. Uh, Then, you know, for the most part, the, the game wasn't too bad. Multiplayer um, is fun. I enjoy it when I play with my friends. Uh, it's It's got some bullet registration issues every now and then, but I've noticed since updates that that seems to have cleared up. Good, because that can kill uh, a shooter. Yeah, it, it could totally kill a shooter. Um, the maps are, to my opinion, you know, the maps and the modes are it's sort of a mix between Modern Warfare and Bad Company 2 where the, the game types are very much like Bad Company 2. They may name them different, but you know you, you have your um, sort of advanced secure type modes and, and your team deathmatch modes and that sort of thing. Uh, but they're not big size maps like you'd see in Battlefield. They're more Call of Duty size maps. Uh, my disappointment is with the thing they call Combat Mission, which is basically like Team Rush in Bad Company. Uh, but it's all about choke points. Uh, so some of the maps are flawed. Uh, so, uh, you know, if you're attacking and you're in the side that's got the limited number of spawn tickets uh, and the defenders have really got a good position at the first choke point, I mean, there's one map uh, that you just can't get past. They'll just shut you if down. they're set up right. They just shut you down from go. And so the map totally makes no sense. And <laughs> Every time that map comes up, that's where the battle is, and you never, you rarely get past it. Once do you have you the skipping do, though, option? No, there's a vote. There's a vote to skip. Yeah, 
for the PC. Yeah, you can skip. Uh, you can or can you can vote the next map. Uh, and, and it's just I thought that I was like, man, they they have to get rid of this map or redesign it because it's just terrible. Uh, <laughs> it's terrible. Uh, but the game <laughs> the game itself is not bad. But it, it is warning it's, it's mediocre reviews. I'm, I've, I, you know, a lot of people were like, ooh, really excited about it. They got into the hype, ooh, tier one operators, and um, it it fell a little short, in my opinion. Uh, but it's prompted me to get involved in another game that I've played before, which is Armed Assault 2. And, and if you want to talk a game that's too realistic, that is one of them. It's more popular in Europe. And, but it's, it's sort of motivated me to challenge myself and in, in getting to something harder. Um, and I really like that game. And then the maps are, are very, very open field. In what way is it more realistic? Well, you, you really have to pay attention to... Um, breath control and stamina more. I mean, if you sprint across the map, you know, or to a distance, you know, you sprint too much. And when you, when you stop to gain a posture, it'll take you a few seconds, uh, for your weapon to steady. Uh, so you, you really have to pay attention to that. The bullet physics are a lot more realistic. Um, you really have to aim a little higher at longer distances. Uh, there's gravity, there's wind. Oh, wow. Uh, so, yeah, it, it's it's accused of being more simulator than game, which I can kind of see the point. <laughs> and, I, and and it's really complicated at times, so I can see why maybe in the West it's not as popular because it's not a pick-up-and-play. Um, you you really have to take the time to learn the game and, and you know, probably hook up with some people who play regularly. Uh, the other thing is uh, uh, aircraft. Um, if you thought uh, aircraft was hard to handle in Battlefield 2 on the PC... Uh, I mean, you pretty much have to be good at flight simulators to fly helicopters in Arma 2. <laughs> but, but it, you know, I like it because it's different. I like games that are a little harder than normal and away from the norm because I feel I get more of a challenge out of it. So that's, and that Medal of Honor thing sort of kind of motivated me to kind of step back into that realm for a little bit. But, and, and I'm enjoying that a lot. So. Yeah, compare that to uh, Modern Warfare 2 where snipers jump from 15 feet uh, in the air. Oh, and- sure. Sure, Tw- twirl sure, around well. once or twice and then uh, hit you with the sniper rifle from three paces. Sure, sure. Well, in those games, <laughs> you know, you're basically, you're not really moving like a human. You yeah. know, your look, character looks human. You're, you're a bipedal robot. You know, <laughs> just, you, your feet go one way and you turn your waist the other. And you know, in Arma, you, you can't really do that. Um, you know, you can't. And you can still do things that make sense to you as if I was shooting. You know, you can lean, you can lie prone. Uh, you know, lately they seem this, in, in battlefield games. It seems to be a thing to take the uh, the ability to lie prone out, which to me is like, well, I understand they're trying to force the action and discourage camping, but uh, I don't know. I I feel that you know to have a camper in there mixes it up once in a while and forces you to to adapt. So yeah, and you could also argue that prepared positions are are right. a part of warfare. So. Exactly. That's that's my opinion. It's, it's to me, it's a legit tactic. It may feel cheap, but you know, theoretically, if the guy never moves, you should be able to get rid of him too. <laughs> my 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 thoughts on that are, in, I, I've never liked the idea of people exploiting familiarity with maps. Um, I mean, if if I know that that there's a choke point at A, and I know exactly where to sit, I'm taking advantage of pre-knowledge, um, which in some in some respects could be applied to real life, but I think the, the better show of, of tactical awareness 
and tactical capability would be, say, a random map where people would have to judge the terrain as they saw it and not rely on, uh, uh, you know, tips and YouTube videos and get to the, the one little niche where nobody can get them. Because then, really, the only option is uh, uh, the, the principle exemplified by Super Meat Boy, where some guy kills you, you respawn, and then use the knowledge gained from your character's last death to go around the other way and get the camper. Sure, sure, no, I agree. But, and, and to me, the opposite of that is if someone is exploiting something on me, um, is to force myself to reverse that. If that makes any sense. Yeah. No, I, and the, the, that, that kind of uh, uh, give and take is, is always what makes those things fun. Uh, Ed and I actually just played uh, a, a wonderful uh, match in Modern Warfare 2, and this is a game where it's typical to have several trades of uh, spawn points, so it becomes even less realistic. Whereas in this game, the, the two groups of, of uh, combatants remained static and it was it was on afghan if you're familiar with that map and yes i am and it was it was fantastic i mean they won they played it smarter but they were on the uh, the far side of the cave and we basically formed lines and we would try to make uh uh sorties and try to right. break through and, and it spawn was just, points never changed i've never seen that in a map in a match before it was that, uh, it was incredible yeah we, we, we basically held our ground through the entire match. I'm still beating my head against the wall. I had, had I not run out through that cave entrance, I think <laughs> we would have won. I'm just saying. But, uh, and yeah. I, think, uh, I think I was the one who gave you the, uh, gave you the order, so to speak. What, to not run out there? Ed, they've got a sentry gun in there. Get out, get out. No, 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 no. I, I thought I saw a moment until I realized there were four blips on the radar and not two, and that was done. But, hey, it was a good match. No, yeah, that was that was a lot of fun. So, Heather, what have you been playing? What have you been well, doing? I was at BlizzCon, as you know, and so I was playing some Diablo three there, and I got spent a, like ten minutes with the Cataclysm beta, which was actually kind of disappointing. I tried to roll a female wargan, <laughs> and on. they. They had the option on the character screen, but when you logged into the game, you couldn't actually play one. So, were you a male Morgan or were you a a, a pink cube or what? <laughs> you were a male character. A pink cube might have actually looked better than the female Morgan models, though. I'll admit. They, they're okay. Um, <laughs> I find the animations a little jerky for now. What didn't you like about the experience? Well, for one, I couldn't play a female Morgan. On the other, I guess, I only got to level three, so you didn't really have enough time to actually get an idea of what you were doing. What I understand about those introductory uh, quest arcs is that, uh, certainly I know from my experience playing the Goblin uh, entry, uh, entry zone, um, rather than a series of uh, nonlinear disconnected quests, you're actually following a, a storyline. Now, there may be some ancillary quests that are that are related to the, uh, the 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 plot, but ironically, I find at least in focusing on a single storyline, Blizzard has increased the replayability rather than 
oh, let's go to the farmer and take care of his problem with wolves and let me go pick apples for this other person. I'm not sure I'm that fond of the really focused storylines. I mean, for the death night, it made a bit more sense, but after playing through that a couple times, it got quite... Well, it didn't have nearly the same impact, and there isn't any flexibility. You have to go through the same quest line to get out of the starting zone. With other characters, I can at least go out of the starting zone and you know wander all the way over somewhere else and go do that instead if I really get bored of it. Correct. I mean, that, that limitation was certainly extraordinary uh, to, the, uh, to the Death Knight. I mean, you were you were literally stuck. Whereas, uh, in in other cases, you you can roam around. Although that isn't the case with with the goblin. You are in a it's actually a, a phased zone that, that doesn't exist by the time you're you're level fifteen. Mm-hmm. So whether whether you're up for that or not, uh, what did you think of Diablo three? Diablo three was quite fun. Got to we did the co op. Beta, so we had several of us wandering around the area, killing things, and I tried out the demon hunter. The what does he do? She? Beyond the obvious, he or she. <laughs> well, I had, for starting out, I had a sprint, kind of a roll movement ability. I had a ability where it fires, I believe there were bolas. That explode for range rapidry. They've got to explode. Yes. Have you seen the uh, video announcement for that class? I have not. I think I uh, I, I may have caught the announcement uh, printed uh, uh, by looking at the MMO Champions Blue Tracker, but uh, no, I haven't followed any visit vi- uh, videos. Excuse me. Yes, because it the ability is shown in the video, and she shoots it, and it has like bullets, so. They wrap around the creature's neck and just blow up. So I had an ability similar to that, and then I picked up one that was... It was called, actually, Fan of Knives. That's a AOE attack ability. Well, so. so now this was your first BlizzCon? Yes. What'd you think? Worth your money? Uh, Would you go again? I'd go again. I heard from some of the people who went previously that it was a bit more cramped this year. And Friday was much better overall. Saturday, there was a certain level of disappointment, especially with the announcements. Because at the ending ceremony, they said, we're going to announce a new MMO we're working on. So, of course, there's everyone is getting excited, and then they make a World of Jersey Shorecraft joke. What's Blizzard? How could you how could you not expect that? This is the company that that looks forward to April Fool's Day 3 years in advance. True, but they didn't really have any good announcements either. The uh Diablo 3 beta key one was 1000 of them when you have 20,000 people there. So there wasn't really anything exciting to uh compensate for the joke. Did you in- Yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. Ed. 
Oh, I was just going to say, I, I agree with Heather on this one. You know, it's, it's in terms of the whole April Fool's Day and joke announcements from developers, yeah, that's great. But for crying out loud, give your fans some some service. <laughs> yeah, Blizzard's in a funny position right now. One month left to limbo, and that's actually where I can pick up on what I've been playing. Uh, a few weeks uh, back, Blizzard implemented patch 4.0.1, which uh, is uh, part of a tradition. It's the patch that uh, immediately predates uh, or precedes the next expansion. And if you look back at uh, articles or any kind of uh, uh, blogs, feedback on those prior patches, you know that for several days or even several weeks, in terms of game balance, it was absolute bedlam and people will talk about uh, the the legendary feats of this character or this class or that class uh, uh, usually putting it into derogatory terms given that a lot of people view many aspects of the game as zero sum if x class does much better uh, and and is just completely favored by mechanics at one given point uh, another class will lose out so uh, this time around, uh, the patch implementation was not without its uh, uh, rocky moments. About half of the classes, uh, in terms of uh, damage dealing, were uh, were at about half capacity. So a lot of people who take their roles in gaming very seriously felt as if uh, their their pay had been cut or something. And you had a lot of uh, a lot of complaints, uh, colloquially known as QQ, on the forums. And there were some rather uh, swift responses from the developers in the forms of hotfixes, uh, some of which I think are, are merely temporary band-aids to, to keep things balanced so people continue to play. And in uh, some of the, the cooperative slash competitive uh, player versus environment facets like running dungeons, raids, and the like, um, but especially player versus player where game imbalances are put into sharp relief, uh, they're they're not going to lose uh, subscribers on Moss, so it's uh, it, it's been interesting. It's it, for me, it is the first uh, pre-expansion patch that I've experienced at Endgame, uh, and and have seen firsthand and experienced firsthand the uh, the, the the ebb and flow of of games and uh, and seeing how sometimes. Uh, the, the state of play will change hour by hour rather than the, the typical cycle, which is month by month or even even longer as a as a game becomes established and the the balance is considered relatively stable. So one month left, December 7th, is the release date for Cataclysm. And I'm quite looking forward to it. I think when, I don't know, it does seem like there's not nearly as much of a buff because I remember when 3.0 came out, we would all go into the raids and the heroics, and it was like, wow, this is incredibly easy. There doesn't seem to be quite that vibe going on right now. Now, that patch was accompanied by a corresponding environmental change. So the, the bosses and the, uh, the NPCs were weakened, correct? Like, they lost a full third of damage and... Uh, yeah, to compensate for the changes, but the, it was very noticeable how much easier they were to kill. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think in some degree, some classes have seen a boost, a market boost. Uh, others, uh, they're just trying to recover their former glory. Um, and in my own particular case, uh, uh, my, my little niche spec uh, arms warrior has been made uh, reasonably viable. And uh, from my playing of the beta at level 85, which is the new max level, uh, it, it does look uh, like a contender. That's good. I know some of the complaints about the class balance are, especially for a pure DPS character, is that for high-end raid specs, it does come into play more. Just because of how they balance groups and people competing for server first and all that. Especially if you don't bring necessary buffs. Yeah, um... I think I'm pretty sure Blizzard will have uh, will have that all under control, um, especially by the time people are ready for actual rating. I mean, they 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 just started uh, testing the uh, the first batch of raids. What ten days ago, two weeks ago, maybe not long. Um, well, well, uh, four to six weeks behind the. Uh, the somewhat comparable uh, schedule for Wrath of the Lich King in uh, 2008. So, I mean, it's, it's trial and error. It's nothing Blizzard hasn't done before. So, it's it's going to be an interesting roller coaster ride. That wraps up our second podcast in this modern era of new podcasts. Hope you enjoyed it. I think we're going to be back for another one, so stay tuned. Thanks for listening. Yeah, I agree. I heard that. If, if you can leave that in, Mike, that would be good. That was pretty good timing. Survey says. <laughs>